welcome to Themis Podcasts. Themis is a risk management firm specialising in financial crime. Our aim of these podcasts is to bring you interesting news, interviews and recordings of our exclusive events from the world of financial crime. The Key Man Philanthrocapitalism Gone Wrong in our latest podcast, recorded as part of a series of interviews with leading investigative journalists who have uncovered major global financial crime scandals, Themis CFO and MD Mina James Whiteman interviews Will Louch, co-author of best-selling book The Key Man. Will talks to us about the brazen international fraud that he helped to uncover, at the heart of which lay Dubai-based private equity firm Abraj, and its charismatic founder, Arif Nakvi. You're about to hear how a promise to make a lot of money whilst doing a lot of good went very wrong. Well, firstly, welcome, Will. It's, it's a real pleasure to be interviewing you today. Um, I was completely enthralled by your book and shocked by the sheer audacity of the fraud that you unveiled. So Arif Nakvi, he was founder and CEO of Abraj, a huge private equity fund in the Middle East. $780 million went missing, one of the largest corporate frauds in recent history, with lavish parties in Dubai, annual appearances at the World Economic Forum in Davos, partnerships with the likes of Bill Gates. The story of Abraj and Arif Nakvi is one of an intricate brazen fraud that's dragged many of the global financial elite into its vortex. How would you explain the scandal to someone who's not yet had a chance to read your book? Well, firstly, thanks very much for having me on. Um, and that's your question. So The Key Man, we like to describe it as a true crime thriller, which tells the story of the rise and fall um, of Arif Nakvi and the investment firm he founded called the Abraj Group. Uh, the Abraj Group raised billions of dollars from investors, including governments like the UK government, the US government, the French government, the Kuwaiti government, um, as well as billionaires like Bill Gates and then many public pension funds as well. Um, this money was raised to be invested in companies across Africa and Asia. And Arif and his firm's pitch was fairly simple, um, but incredibly compelling. He promised investors he would make market-beating financial returns and also bring jobs, healthcare, and education to parts of the world where these things were lacking. Um, at the firm's peak, it managed around $14 billion, and Arif was lauded by politicians, academics, as well as many of the world's leading businessmen and women. Uh, then in early 2018, uh, it all started to go wrong. Um, myself and colleagues at the Wall Street Journal published a story um, which stated that investors were investigating where $200 million of their money had gone. Um, within a matter of months, the firm had filed for liquidation. Uh, Arif now stands accused by the US Department of Justice of 16 counts of fraud, theft and racketeering. Uh, if he's found guilty of all these charges, then he faces up to 291 years in a maximum security prison in the US. That's a brief summary of the book. So there's some pretty crazy statistics in there. I mean, how, 
uh, and how how was he away, able to get away with this? I mean, it seems that he managed to conceal what was actually pretty dire financial situation for years. Yeah, I mean, this is one of the things when we were reporting this story out that really kind of blew my mind. The firm, according to uh, provisional liquidators who carried out an analysis of the firm's finances, uh, basically discovered that Abraj was practically insolvent from 2014 on. So for four and a half years, over four and a half years, Arif and Abraj presented itself as a phenomenally successful money-making machine but the realities were somewhat different like the firm was in an incredibly precarious financial state um and how they were able to get away with it were just a series of what our reporting in the department of justice indictment have shown to be just fairly ludicrous financial shenanigans so how it would work was that Abraj would raise separate pots of money from investors. So, for instance, they raised a $1 billion fund, which was meant to buy and build hospitals and diagnostic clinics across Asia and Africa. And so they'd raise this money for this specific purpose, and it was meant to be kept segregated. But what the firm actually did was pull money from various funds that they raised together and then would just use it instead of to buy and build hospitals. They'd use it to finance Aris lifestyle, pay the firm's salaries, its office rents. And in terms of like the expenditure that Abraj, I mean, the volume of money that they got through was just phenomenal. I mean, Arif spent $347,000 on a single dinner at Davos. And this is all the while, like his firm literally has no money, and he's emailing his uh, accountant saying, "Please, can you transfer money from the healthcare fund to our central pool of cash, because we don't have any money." So it was lavish spending, and then just taking money from places where the firm were not meant to be taking money, and this kind of balancing act that they carried on, as I said, for four, four and a half years. Um, which is pretty crazy. And, and what were the sort of seeds of, of his downfall in this in this whole saga? So I think there are kind of two parts to that question. I mean, the seeds of the firm's downfall was, as I've mentioned, I mean, it was keeping up appearances. Arif was hanging out with some of the world's wealthiest and most powerful people. And to be invited into their company and to keep their company, you have to do as they do. So, I mean, the firm was spending lots of money on private jets every year, sponsorship of the World Economic Forum. So you had to you had to just keep all this lavish spending to to keep up appearances. And then the second part was the seeds of his downfall really were it was all about ego. I mean, the firm was set up in. 2002 there were five partners when it was initially set up within a matter of years all of the founding partners apart from Arif had left there was no one to keep him in check uh he was the founder the ceo like the star of the show and he was an incredibly captivating person like when he talked like everyone listened like his employees basically 
did his bidding without really questioning what they were being told to do. Um, and a lot of very intelligent people found Arif to be incredibly bright, informed and witty, and he was incredibly difficult to say no to. And no one ever did. Like the board at Abraz did very little senior executives who were aware that maybe things were being done which weren't corrected, nothing. Um, the firm's auditors somehow never managed to pick up on the fact that money was being moved between accounts where it shouldn't have been being moved. Um, so yeah, the, se the seeds of Arif's downfall really were, were sown by people never saying no to him. Fascinating, yes. And I, I think that speaks well to you know the title of the book, The Key Man, and that he was very much a one-man kind of band on show that can sort of seem to control uh, uh, you know all aspects of the business and what he said went. How was the, the ultimate scale of the fraud unveil? I mean, how did it start to unravel? So this story began to unravel in around September 2017. Um, so an executive at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, uh, which had $100 million invested in uh, the $1 billion healthcare fund I mentioned previously, they realised that they'd been asked to send over hundreds of millions of dollars, but that the money hadn't been invested. Um, and an executive there, a guy called Andrew Farnham, just kind of looked at this and thought, this doesn't really make much sense. Like, why do they keep on asking us for so much money if it's not being deployed? Um, so him and some of the other investors had a conversation the call was arranged i think it was october the 12th 2017 um a lady who works at the british government cdc which was another investor asked on a telephone call some people were meeting in person some were dialing in why money had been drawn down but not deployed Abraj's response was that there have been unexpected delays on hospital construction projects. And then Andrew Farnham, the Gates person, dials in and says, can you confirm which bank account all this money is being kept in? And a Braj employee responds saying the money is being kept in a Cayman Island bank account. And Andrew was astonished at this response and was like, hang on a sec, you told me in September that the bank it was being kept in was the commercial bank of Dubai, not the Cayman Islands bank account. And so all of the investors on the call are just thinking, oh my like God, like how has the barge managed to misplace $200 million of our money? And so they then ask the barge for bank statements. The barge won't give them bank statements. And they're thinking, oh God, we've got a serious problem here. Our money has literally disappeared. Or if it hasn't disappeared, then this firm, which says that it's, you know, practices best practices in terms of corporate governance has, has misplaced significant sums of our cash. So that that all kind of runs until about December 2017. And investors clearly aren't happy with the situation, understandably. And then where we come into the story was in January 2018. So the next month after like the whole thing has really blown up, a whistleblower sends me an email from an anonymous address. Um, the initial email didn't really contain any particularly interesting information. It just said that a senior executive at Abraj was leaving. 
I checked out this information. I emailed the senior executive who replied, no, I'm not leaving. Don't know who you heard this from. Probably rubbish. So I emailed the anonymous person back and said, you know, uh, I checked out this piece of information. Um, Seb said he's not leaving. And, you know, is there anything else you want to tell me? And then the next email I got was, I mean, like a journalistic goldmine. Uh, the anonymous person said, you know, the Gates Foundation and other investors are investigating where $200 million of their money had gone. Uh, they said that the firm had been effectively stealing investor money for years. Um, the anonymous whistleblower said that attempts had been made to bribe senior Pakistani politicians to help facilitate the sale of a company uh, which they owned in Pakistan called Karachi Electric. And so I just got this and I was like, wow, this is incredible. If we could confirm any of this to be true, this is going to be a pretty, pretty compelling story. Um, so obviously the anonymous person, the fact that they were anonymous added a whole new layer of complexity to actually being able to publish the information because we didn't know who the person was, so they could have been lying to us. It could have been propaganda. It could have been a rival firm trying to take them down or an embittered employee or former employee could have just been making up lies. So we had to take this information and independently verify it with as many different sources as we possibly could. So from the initial email, Jan mid-January 2018, it took us about three weeks to get uh, our first story out, which ran in the Wall Street Journal uh, on 2nd of February 2018. Um, and then after that, I mean, all hell broke loose, um, really. And investors, creditors, employees were all basically asking what was going on because the allegations, you know, which we ran with in our article, really spooked people, basically. Yes. Yeah. Huge allegations. I mean, at that time, um, really, really significant findings and re reportings. I mean, do you, for, for those people who knew Nakvi or worked at Abraj, how do they react to this, these, these revelations? Did, did, did this come as a shock or not necessarily? Uh, yeah, it depends who you speak to. To people who were working at the firm and with the firm, initially, I mean, most people were just in a state of denial. Um, because of so for instance before we published the article we obviously had to let the firm know that we were going to be running a story and what the contents of the story were going to include so they had the opportunity to comment on all of these things so the first person I spoke to at Abraj and put these allegations to them uh, was a former US representative to the World Bank who had joined Abraj the year before he told me that there was absolutely no way the story could be true as Abraj was regulated by seven different regulators. He had done extensive due diligence on the firm before joining, including phoning Barack Obama, um, who's best, one of his oldest and best friends worked at Abraj. So he, we were just told like there was absolutely no way that it was true. So we got comfortable enough to publish a story day after Another senior executive at Abraj, uh, an American guy called Mark Bourgeois, who's worked at loads of significant American financial institutions. He sent a letter to investors calling the Wall Street Journal's story fake news. So 
a lot of people initially were just like this is you know this is rubbish like this can't be true and then as the story just slowly unfolded over the months uh, people's opinions changed but even even now like some people you know don't think Aris done anything wrong and that he was a victim of a economic hit, hitman job by the US government and um, US newspapers, including the Wall Street Journal. Um, so, yeah, I think it's not for a lot of people, but if you actually read the key man, but fully answer your question, some of Arif's initial partners um, were not happy with how things were being run at the firm back, uh, like 15, 20 years ago. Um, yes, and yes. There's some correspondence which, which we quote, uh, a guy called Ali Shahabi, who was a partner at Abraj uh, in the early days, who says, makes some joke, well, it's not really a joke, just says, one day, Arif, I will be called on as a witness at your at your trial. Um, so some people obviously thought that maybe things weren't right, but the vast majority of people, even after many stories ran, still stuck by him. Yeah, it's fascinating. I mean, from from a from a reader's perspective, the the tale that you narrate is, I mean, it's shocking on numerous levels. Here was somebody who was purporting to be acting in the common good and addressing, I guess, pressing societal issues, um, you know, through impact in ESG investing, and who'd successfully managed to get so many big international names, as you say, to buy into his dream. Yet he ultimately proved to be a complete fraud, um, masterminding a global Ponzi-like scheme. I mean, which aspects of the story do you find most shocking? What what makes this case stand out amongst other tales of greed and, and, and corruption? Yeah, I think I think I think you kind of touched on it in the in the question. It's just the fact that what really makes it stand out from you know, other big financial scandals that we've seen. So one's, you know, in the public conscience, like everyone's seen, well, lots of people have seen Wolf of Wall Street. Mm. Bernie Madoff, pretty, pretty uh, familiar name to lots of people when in the context of financial fraud. I think what really stands out about this is that those financial scandals were all about making money. Like the people who invested and lost money in those scams weren't really interested in doing societal good. They were interested in self-enrichment and I think like what makes the key man more shocking was that this money that Arif has allegedly taken was raised in the name of solving some of the most pressing problems in the world like for yeah. instance one billion dollars was raised to improve access to healthcare in some of the countries that need improved access to healthcare the most mm. and so it wasn't just about making money for small groups of people this was about private capital being used to take the place of governments in some instances and deliver jobs deliver improved education and healthcare in places which really needed it and like a, a good kind of example of this is barack obama went to cairo in i think 2008 Eight, I can't remember exactly which year, and gave this speech about healing, you know, the US's relationship with the Muslim world and how American style capitalism could be used to help solve issues like terrorism um, in the Middle East mm -hmm. by, you know, investing in companies, bringing employment um, to places that need it. And Abraj 
you know, obviously heard this speech and went and pitched themselves to the US government saying, you know, we can help you achieve your foreign policy objectives, which the US government were clearly hoping would bring peace to the region. And the fact that they did that and the pitch that they delivered to like all their investors about, you know, being able to do good and make money at the same time. Like for me, and the contrast between what they said they were going to do and what it is alleged they did is just so stark. Um, and yeah, it makes it makes it really stand out, I think, in the in the Hall of Fame of greed and corruption in the corporate Indeed. world. Indeed, yeah, I, I, it's the irony, as uh, you know, it, of, of push, putting yourself or presenting yourself as um, uh, wanting to make investors money, provide a good return whilst alleviating poverty, or you know, investing in ESG such um, types, types of investment um, that makes it all the more shocking. And, and as you say, you know, I was watching a, a video of, of him on stage with uh, Arif Nakvi, that is on, on stage with Richard Branson in 2014 at the World Economic Forum. And, it, and, and, and this sort of stark contrast between what he practiced and what he preached was just, I mean, it's absolutely mind-blowing, isn't it? Really, when yeah. he's presenting to thousands of people. Yeah. Um, I mean, what what lessons do you, do you think um, has been drawn from the Abraj story around the, the narrative around global impact investing as a, as a result of this? So I, I think, you know, like some you've seen some commentators say, you know, that this is going to be potentially incredibly damaging. But if you actually look at like the direction of travel since the scandal broke in 2018, I mean, ESG and impact investing as a whole notion has just gone from strength to strength. Like, yeah. I mean, pretty much every financial institution is marketing products, which, you know, claim to be in the societal good, um, are supposed to just be about making money. And I think really like the takeaway from this book is that the claims of institutions, you know, that have been devoted for most of their history to concentrate on profit making, and now say that they're acting in society's like best interest. Just these claims need to be carefully scrutinized because I mean the book is a reminder that some companies and some executives, you know, who knows how many if it's gonna be ten people, thousands of people, ten thousand people, who will use this shift from shareholder capitalism to stakeholder capitalism to profit for mm. themselves. Um and so I think it's just a timely reminder that the motives of of these financial institutions and business executives like, should be carefully scrutinized. Um, yeah, I mean, indeed. Um, I mean, besides his sort of zeitgeisty message as he's presenting, you know, on the world stage really and selling um, selling these impact investments or ESG investments. I mean, what was it about that and, and his work that attracted all those those big investments, the high-profile names you mentioned, some of them in the prologue: Bill Gates, Prince Charles, John Kerry, the United Nations. I mean, even Interpol. How did that we managed to lure these individuals and these organisations in? And I mean, how is the fact that he was so well connected? Was it really the fact that he was so well connected that, that allowed him to pull these off? Yeah. So, so in terms of how he managed to lure these individuals in, I think like. A big part of it, like if you look at just like those three names that you mentioned there, Bill Gates, Prince Charles and John Kerry, I mean, they're all white and they're all from the West. Like Arif was actually from 
from um, the emerging markets. He was born in Pakistan. He worked in Saudi Arabia. He worked in Dubai. Mm. Many of his employees yeah. came from countries really all around the world. Um, and I think this was really important when he was pitching himself to uh, Western financial institutions, Western governments, Western billionaires, like as a partner, um, that he he said he could take take these people into markets where they wanted to invest money and that he had experience from them and he knew them. And I think that is like a fairly... It was a compelling. It was a compelling pitch to make to to these people because Arif, like Arif, knew Pakistan, for instance, very well because he had mm. been brought up there. Um, and then another, maybe more straightforward answer as to why these people were lured in. Well, I think the fact that Arif had lots of money was very appealing. Wealthy people liked to hang out with other wealthy people. Like you mentioned, John Kerry. John Kerry. Why was he at an Abraz Investor event? It was because he was paid $250,000 to talk for an hour or so to be there. Um, I think that's not a payday that many people would turn down. Um, And then John Kerry, again, after, you know, when he was working out what to do um, when his time as Secretary of State was up, he held talks with Abraz, and we've been told by people that are involved in the conversations that if he joined a branch full time or as an advisor, he'd potentially earn millions of dollars a year. So if you want to know why John Kerry was involved with Arif, I mean, the money, I, I would argue, maybe played maybe played a part. Um, same with Prince Charles, like Arif gave very generously to some of his charities, Bill Gates. Um, Arif set up a charitable initiative in Pakistan initially with the Gates Foundation, um, which Arif said that he gave $100 million of his own money to help um, with a couple of charitable initiatives there. So it's it's kind of the story. It's like having money, being in the right places, like hanging out at the World Economic Forum um, every year. I mean, these when you see someone on stage talking to Bill Gates and they've set up a partnership to help tackle healthcare, I mean, if you see Bill Gates, you're probably not going to think that guy's maybe going to be taking investor money um and then to the second part of your question about like how did the fact he's so well connected help him pull off the scheme i mean it was an incredibly important part of how he was able to get away with what he is allegedly doing for so long so if you reference like the interpol foundation uh that Arif sat on the board of so interpol's secretary general gave a talk uh, at an Abraj investor event in Dubai. So Jürgen Stock, the Secretary General, on stage warned of organised crime taking benefit from globalisation. And if you're an investor sitting in that room listening to the Secretary General of in- Interpol talk about financial crime and globalisation, you're never going to think that the firm that organised that event and is hosting the Interpol Secretary General is actually going to be committing financial crimes um like when investors asked Arif how he navigated corruption he said that with just two telephone calls he could find out anything about anyone anywhere in the world through his Interpol connections and so the fact that he was you know so ingrained 
in the fabric of organizations such as Interpol, I mean, was was really a reason why he was able to get off with, uh, like, get away with what he was allegedly doing for such a long, a long time, I think. Yes, yeah, and I, I, certainly I think that that brings us on quite nicely to the, the corporate governance aspect, which you, you touched on uh, a little bit earlier. But of, I mean, a very worrying thing that the book reveals is the extent to which essential questions were skipped when it came to external yeah. dealings with the Barrage. You know, investors, auditors, law firms, I mean, for long periods of time, no one seemed to be questioning Araj's bill of health or Nat, indeed Natby's business tactics. You know, even even a, a Harvard Business School professor put Araj and, 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 as a founder on a, on a real pedestal. He was even sort of thought of as being a future sort of president of Pakistan, as, I, as, I, as the, the book sort of mentions. Yeah. Um, which, 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 you know, reflects the sort of esteem that he was held held in, as you say, at many of these events and the, the people that he that he rubbed shoulders with. I mean, what what do you what do you think were the key lessons that were learned that that, that have been learned and are going to be learned from this case from a due diligence perspective? Uh, yeah, I think it's a really good question because the due diligence aspect of this story just really I find just quite astonishing. Uh, mm. I, I've never, you know, worked at an accountancy firm or an investment consultant firm which like, advised people on where to invest their money. I've never carried out due diligence on, you know, yeah. I, I've never done it, so I don't necessarily like know exactly how it works. But like some of the stuff that happened in in here is ridiculous. Like there's a yes. U.S. Uh, investment consultancy called Hamilton Lane, um, which is one of the world's largest and most influential uh, investment consultancies advising pension funds and other financial institutions where to invest uh, its money. Uh, that, and they produced a 100-page due diligence report on a barrage. And there was nothing in that. To, nothing that they discovered when carrying out this due diligence report was sufficient. No red flags. To mean, yeah, that they, they still said, yeah, cool, like clients, you should definitely invest. And then one thing that I didn't mention earlier with the whole like, unraveling thing was in September 2017, another whistleblower emailed some investors, including Hamilton Lane, saying, do your due diligence. The firm's pumping up its valuations, uh, you know, made various other allegations. And like, Hamilton Lane got sent this email and they didn't do anything. Uh, well, I said they didn't do anything. They sent an email to Arif, and Arif said, "Don't be ridiculous. This is obviously nonsense." And then they still advise their clients to invest their money. And so, from a due diligence perspective, perspective, if if I were an investor investing money, it would make me think, "Oh God, like how much money do I have invested in other stuff?" Which is you know not great just purely because yeah. the due diligence process in in this one case just really you know it, it was non-existent um i think yeah i think and, and whatever they were doing before they need to maybe think uh reimagine their approach yeah for sure for sure um and it'll be interesting to see what you know what changes or what changes are effective in the private, private equity industry going forward but i mean as, as a journalist who covered this is specifically a private equity investment fraud Ponzi scheme style um, fraud. What's your sense of how 
levels of scrutiny look more broadly in the industry? Do you see inadequate checks as a wider problem that many private equity firms need to grapple with? Yeah, so I, I mean, the the industry, I mean, has been a real big winner over like the last decade. I mean, it's absolutely ginormous now. It owns so many assets and has so many, you know, like large companies, like Asda, for instance, private equity backs, like so many like really famous companies that play an integral role in people's everyday lives that are owned by the PE industry. But there's really so little insight into these firms and how they run and then the economics of the firms like themselves. So, I mean, like with Abraj, for instance, it was the biggest player in its own kind of niche, um, which was emerging markets PE. And the biggest players in the industry wield huge amount of power over their investors. Um, and this is just from conversations I've had like with, with investors in PE funds. There's very much a sense that like you don't want to be the ones to ask difficult questions, because if you do ask difficult questions, then if you want to allocate money to these funds, then your allocation might be cut. Um, for instance, and like PE is a pretty good place and has been a good place for lots of big institutions to park substantial sums of money like, over the past decade. Um, and I just think it's just got problematic just because the, the balance of power has kind of shifted towards these firms and they are really like totally lacking transparency or like vast ways of the industry are anyway. Um, so I think I think that's something that definitely needs to be looked at. I mean, there was an interesting case in the US involving P firm called Vista Equity Partners. Maybe that's a story for another time. But um, mm. yeah, I, I think I think the industry really needs to sort out sort itself out in terms of transparency. I think investors need to be willing to ask much more difficult questions um yeah. even if it maybe compromises their relationship because ultimately yeah like you know you don't want people losing the money of pension funds which manage money for teachers in texas for instance like which was an investment in branch um, indeed yeah no i mean huge amounts of money are at stake and, and um uh, a lot of people get get obviously very very embarrassed off the, off the back of uh uh, you know, financial fraud disasters happening uh, in this way. I mean, so I mean, moving forward, what what do you think is the will be the next twist, if any, in this roller coaster story? Where, where is Nathalie now, and, and and what awaits him? So, Arif still currently under house arrest in his home in Kensington, uh, in London. His mm. extradition to the US has been approved by the UK courts and. Uh, the Home Secretary. I think he has potentially the right to appeal that decision. Um, so his extradition is still pending. Um, if he ends up getting extradited, then he'll face trial and, you know, the courts will decide whether he's guilty or not. And it's worth adding at this point that Arif denies all charges that he's been accused of. Um, two of the other five Abraj executives that were indicted um, have pleaded guilty um, in the US to multiple charges. Um, but yeah, that's where things are at the moment, and we'll just have to wait and see. Interesting. Well, we'll, we'll we will watch it watch it very closely going going forward. Um, 
Uh, one one final question, if, if I may, Will. Your, your book mentions uh, that the, the investors uh, compared Nat B to Tom Cruise in Mission Impossible. Do you think that there's a big screen uh, film rendition of the story in the works? And if so, who would you like to see play the role of Will Lauch? Uh, good question. Um, yeah, well, I mean, we'd love, we'd love for the story to be made into a film, and I think it would potentially be a good and exciting piece of work. Um, yeah, maybe some more news on that uh, in the coming weeks. Um, and as to who I would like to play me, uh, good question. Absolutely, to be to be perfectly honest, I'd probably rather keep myself off screen. Um, I I like to keep a low profile, so the point on the big screen might be a bit scary for me. I think um, maybe I'll play myself actually. <laughs> um, Thank you very much. Will Lounge, it's been a pleasure speaking to you. Thanks very much, James. Thank you for listening to the latest Themis podcast. We hope you found it interesting and informative. If you would like to find out more about Themis, get in touch with us via our website, www.crime.financial. You can also subscribe for future news and interviews.